0: It's so great that Alexandro has come in today. I mean, how can we say not empty-handed? Hello Alex. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Beware of Greeks bearing gifts
0: <laughs> I don't think I will beware. I'm so pleased I haven't had any lunch today. I actually feel a little bit like Jenny Murray on Woman's <laughs> Hour when they do the recipe. Yes. Um, just amazing. We've got in front of us, and I know it's it's a sort of invidious thing to describe food to people listening. I'm very sorry if you're hungry, but do not worry. You will soon be able to make this yourself, I'm sure. We've got absolutely delicious plates filled with colour and texture and different smells. I think you should start by just plucking one. I think this one here with beetroot, some form of something that looks a little bit like kumos, and some very strange little yellow jewel-like things. What are they?
1: <laughs> They're pickled raisins. Um, the idea being to try and reproduce sour grapes, which were a very useful thing in uh, the, around the Mediterranean in um you know classical times when there were no lemons around i know it's impossible to imagine mediterranean cuisine without tomatoes potatoes lemons aubergines uh, white beans but all those things are relatively new imports from either the east or the west
0: it is really um, amazing lemon is something i would associate so strongly with greek cookery
1: yes as you would tomatoes uh, as you would potatoes mm-hmm. i mean mm. it, it is it's impossible to imagine italian pasta without tomato and yet tomato sauces are a very very recent uh, addition to italian cuisine in the grand scheme of things <laughs> <laughs> and so i think that's a that's a, a really interesting springboard um from which to start to think what food means in terms of identity and how it changes as relations between nations become different and trade happens and new ingredients come come to a country and how people use that and integrate them in their cuisine.
0: I mean, migration. Yes. You know, the huge driver of different kinds of cookery for hundreds and thousands of years. Absolutely.
1: Especially in the case of Greece, which mm. has Um, you know, for 3,000 years been a nation that has either um, occupied someone else's lands or has been occupied itself. Mm. Mm. And so that mix has been a constant, constant feature. And uh, what you have today as modern Greek cookery is really the mix of essentially two groups of Greeks, the Greeks that lived in the mainland and the Greeks that lived in Asia Minor, Um, So when there was a huge population exchange after the First World War, and all the Greeks of Asia Minor and Constantinople were pushed out, what happened is that you had on one side uh, a a sort of a basis of cooking that was all about freshness, all about herbs, and on the other side you had the classic traditions of the Middle East that were all about spice. And when those two came together, you got the wonderful fusion that is Greek cooking today. Um, So something that is completely quintessential, like stuffed tomatoes, or uh, this that we have here, briam, um, is entirely a fusion of that Asia Minor spicy cuisine with a very fresh Mediterranean cuisine that existed in Greece before.
0: Yes, I can see lots of fresh vegetables there. I think courgettes and aubergines and yes. carrots. And it just looks so enticing and also so healthy. I mean, this is something that we're told over and over and again, <laughs> how healthy we would all be if we adopted a Mediterranean diet. <laughs> yes, but I
1: think uh, one can't do that selectively. Um, you can't just sprinkle a bit of oregano and drizzle olive oil and everything and think, oh, I'm being terribly healthy. That's no, a Mediterranean I diet. understand it's more complicated you know, uh, than that, isn't it? And, and actually, <laughs> Greek cuisine has a, 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 quite a bad rep, I think, because it's seen as a very meat-based and very, um, you know, full of toxins in a way. And that's because I think that there's a sense of hospitality there that that simply does not allow you to make the sort of things I've made for you today. You would never get them in a restaurant. You would never be served them as guests in a Greek home because it would be considered outrageously mean to serve a vegetable, a roast vegetable medley to a guest. Mm -hmm. You would only, by definition, get Sunday best food. When you went to a, a Greek restaurant or a Greek home,
0: so that's why we think of those wonderful lamb stews. Yes, and,
1: and they are part of it, mm. but they're very much an occasional treat. Mm. Um, and so, but the beating heart of Greek cuisine is all about beans and pulses and vegetables and soups and things like that. Um, and it is heavily plant-based. Um, and it involves also a period of fasting, which is where we're, where we're at now. We're in the six-week fast before Greek Orthodox Easter, um, which again is a very important part of the Mediterranean diet. You know, um, Giving your liver, your internal organs, a, br- a six-week break from animal protein um, every year is a big, big thing um, health-wise. And so you can't pick and choose dishes here and there and fool yourself into thinking that you're being terribly healthy because you're eating Mediterranean food.
0: This is speaking um, very badly to my idea of simply eating <laughs> no, yeah, but, and calamari listen, for the rest of my life.
1: calamari is great, masaka is great, all of it is great, but the truth is that, you know, actually the the sort of temperatures you get in the summer, it's almost impossible to sit down and have cooked m- food all the time and so for a a long period we exist on salads and fruit and stuff like that, you know, stuff that you can just grab out of the fridge um, or you can have at room temperature because it's simply too hot to, to roast a massive dish with loads of meat and bechamel and sort of sit there and eat that. There is a place for it and a time for it and, you know, glorious it is, but it's not for every day if you're if you're not having legumes beans uh vegetable stews sort of once or twice a week you're doing the mediterranean diet wrong <laughs> <laughs>
0: basically. it did strike me actually and i i think this is exactly kind of where you're headed it's actually it's incredibly easy to be a vegetarian or even maybe a vegan yes in Greece, which I don't think you would necessarily think if you didn't think of it in in that way. But actually, one could exist very happily.
1: No, I mean, the joke is that uh, sort of Greek grandmothers don't really understand vegetarianism, so they're likely to serve you chicken. You know, if you tell them I have a friend coming that's a vegetarian, their response is likely to be, oh, good, I'll roast a chicken. But but if you told them that I have a friend coming, so you have to make something nistissimo, which is fasting food, uh, they'd completely get that. And they would make something and like this. they would make like something this. delicious mm. that's sort of so that's without animal protein. And so when I was compiling the recipes that would go in the book, um, completely ignoring their content as a guide because it was all about recipes that are important to me and and my mother and the family recipes essentially that's what this is um, a, a vegan friend asked me will there be anything in there for me and and I went back and looked at the list of recipes and was surprised to find that almost half of them mm. were mm. vegan the perfect um, for... but without sort of trying to be vegan which is often what what yields the best recipes, you know, rather than something masquerading as something else, something that is has genuinely developed as a taste, but just happens to contain no animal product.
0: I can't hold out any longer. Can you? <laughs> I don't know how we've managed to well, hold out this long. Well, I'm being very polite, I suppose. I'm just oh, being very yes. polite, but I think we have to eat some of this yes, food. Do you think we should start with these beetroot and pickled have raisins you and. Want. and now the, I, I would call this scordalia, but you <laughs> obviously I would call it
1: scordalia. So yes. it's very a very small difference, but uh, yes, scordo is garlic. Okay, and so this so is heavily garlic scordalia is basically scordo and oil, garlic and oil. So this is a uh, wow.
0: I'm going to hand you a fork. Yes, a no. Bag. If you
1: have Please a date say. this evening, <laughs> I'd advise against well,
0: it. I, you know. And
2: you <laughs> were saying <laughs> with the... with dates the
0: come, the <laughs> come, dates go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Score of <the> lies forever. <laughs> right. You know. Okay. The
2: pickled raisins. You were saying uh, as a w- replacement for, for lemons, because well, not replacement, well, the, but what came the, before lemons. Yes,
1: the predecessor of lemons. Yeah. So when they when they mm. wanted to um, when they wanted to sour dishes, especially seafood, where actually vinegar is not. A particularly good uh, partner mm. for fish or prawn or something like that um, they would use unripe grapes called agurida, and uh, and as a matter of fact i think uh, ver juice is becoming quite fashionable yeah, again yeah. which is the juice of the unripe as a souring agent um, but they
0: are absolutely delicious. They are delicious,
1: aren't they? Delicious. No, I know. I'm I'm very proud of that little <laughs> discovery. I I kept uh, I kept sort of searching to see if they were a thing. when I made them, I thought they must be a thing. Surely someone has done. Oh my God, this. they're oh, amazing! They're
0: but they're not a thing.
1: So <laughs> well, they are now. They will be a soon thing. to be <laughs> a thing. You heard it here first. I have to say, yes.
0: Scordalia, oh. Now, I is
1: that like your unlucky Cefalonia experience?
0: Yes, I had a. a Something that I really didn't enjoy. And I think of myself as a genuinely adventurous eater when I'm travelling. And hearty, a very hearty eater. But it defeated me, I have to say. But I now understand that it was not supposed to be freezing cold, nor made of potato, nor the texture of wallpaper paste. And now I have eaten this... I it is it is a different mm. thing. Now different admittedly thing. you you would not want to eat that if you didn't like garlic. No. It is very heavily garlicky. It it's is very absolutely garlicky, delicious. Yes.
2: It's one of those things when you have those very garlicky things where you can feel your heart saying thank you. Yes.
1: You know, it knows that it's good. <laughs> the pulse slowing down mm, yeah. and everything I going just, yes.
2: really good. Yeah. Really good.
0: What is the thing that goes with the garlic to make it into this into this sort of dip like kind of texture? It,
2: well,
1: there are two schools. One is potato. I have rejected that mm. in no good, certain term. Um, <laughs> well, I think because actually when you used to make the scordella using a pestle and mortar, potatoes were probably a very good base for it because you, you could mash them into a, a silky consil- consistency very easily. But now that everyone uses a, a, a blender or a mixer, what happens is that if you blend potatoes, the the starch cells that have be, become engorged with the water during the boiling process, they sort of split and release starch, and so you end up with glue, actual mm. glue, mm. which is why sort of mashed potato done in a in a blender is is sort of really gloopy mm. and glutinous. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um it goes it just goes wrong. So when you're mashing potato, you want to basically mash them while bursting as few of the starch cells as possible so that they stay fluffy. Mm. And when you're doing, when you're making a scuradilla in a blender, it's impossible to do that. So we're rejecting the potato school. The potato <laughs> school is gone,
2: <laughs> and we're
1: using stale bread. Stale bread is the thing to form the basis of scuradilla. And I always put a few walnuts in as well because I mm-hmm. like the sort of extra... Uh, uh, texture and taste of the of the. Warm. It is
0: phenomenal. Mm. It's just delicious. And the pickled raisins are out of it. But uh, we must move on. Yes, so we the must. Next, <coughs> yes. Other plates to are the next... Staring to next, at. to other plates on. are staring at us. Yes. Including, now, what you called... Bri- briam. 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 Briam with an M. At the end. Yes, okay. Briam.
1: Or we call it Turlu, which uh, means quite literally hodgepodge. <laughs> and, well, I and guess that's, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, its basis okay, is potato a, a, and aubergine. Those are the two things that really you need in there to make it a bream. Um But mm. the rest of it is a, effectively an exercise of what have I got in the fridge mm. or the pantry that needs using up. Um, and, and that's its beauty, that, that sort of once every couple of weeks you can say, what vegetables have I got that look a little bit sad and limp and, <laughs> and need to be used up rather than be thrown away and make them into this mixture that's just delicious?
2: Oh, right. See, for years, <clears throat> my, one of my specialities at home has been to basically clean out anything that needs to go and, and turn yes. into something. I didn't realise I was actually cooking in the Greek Tradition uh, but does exactly. it taste like this? Though. No, it no, doesn't the, taste as good as that. The Greek
1: tradition. tradition is very much one of thrift. You were mm. cooking in exactly yes. the Greek tradition. Um, and so you could include anything in that. You know, broccoli florets, you could put... Uh, mm. uh, a lot of people put uh, uh, chicory in, you can put fennel in, you can literally any sort of vegetable. It's The key is... Uh, Having a feel for what size you need to chop them to, so that they all arrive at this sort of nice stage together, and and that is something that you have to experiment with. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, if you when you start cooking, you don't know that the thin bit of the car- carrot needs to be chopped slightly um, longer than the thick bit of the carrot, otherwise they won't cook at the same time. But it's something you find out as you cook. Mm. And this thing on the side, um, he said, um, <laughs> is a, 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 a sort of vegan feta.
2: Oh, and wow. Oh, I thought it was
1: like bread. No, it's sort of bread because
0: crawls. I... Oh, my goodness. I thought it was <laughs> like bread. I thought it was like... Um,
1: well, th- that's a, the, the idea. The rusk that you sometimes... Yes, well, that's yeah. the idea, mm. that it, it serves the same purpose. So, um, mm. yes, mm. so I haven't... I haven't arrived at a name yet. Okay. We're, we are toying with fake her. Vegan <laughs> <laughs> vetter. Vetter? Faked Vetter. I quite like Do you think? <laughs> Does that. <laughs> no, it sounds like something European ministers would do to each other.
0: Yes, it doesn't sound. <laughs> I will vetter you. <laughs> it doesn't sound. It doesn't mm. sound great. You're That's right. That's really Look, good. I'm just eating too much of this now, i.e., all of it. No, you're, oh. very, you're being very good. You're being. <laughs> it's Mediterranean. Yes, exactly. Mm.
2: Now, we're going to break the rules of your fasting period, aren't we? Because there is some meat here. Oh, yes. Alex
0: won't, though. Will he? Uh, Alex well, won't. I, no. we, won't. We will. Yes. Well, we, will. we will. You we will. can we'll do it some... vicariously through mm. us.
2: Yes. <laughs> but tell us more about this. This It's a cured it, meat. It's isn't a
1: cured it? pork loin, air cured, mm-hmm. uh, called Um it, you know, it exists in various versions all around the Mediterranean. It's basically the best cut of meat, very gently mm. um, uh, salt cured and hung to. Um,
2: oh. It's good.
0: We shouldn't both eat it at the same time. Just no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm
1: delighted to see you doing that. Mm. But it's uh, um, and the idea, I guess, behind bringing that is that that particular version. Is, is only made on the island where I was born. And so, to me, it carries very, very specific memories of childhood. While well, to you, it is a completely new taste. Yes, mm. yes. Um, and, and I think that is part of the magic of food. Um, you've just tasted a bit of my childhood. Mm. And there is no other way to share that, I think, um, you know it's such a personal experience mm-hmm. that there is no other way to share that my grandmother um, used to make me a little slice of bread with a drizzle of olive oil and some tomato paste on it that was my snack mm. you know when she was minding me if my mother was working that was my elevenses as it were and I remember sharing that experience on social media at some point and people suddenly coming up with all those things that their grandma used to give to them and they were so unique and so unusual I mean there were people saying uh, sandwich with shredded lettuce and sugar um, <laughs> that was that was actually I, I got that from loads of people from the north of England mm. saying that my you know bread and dripping was another mm. very yeah. grandma sort of thing but you know different people from different countries we're sharing these really simple tastes, really basic tastes that were all about childhood and back to which they go when they're feeling a little bit lower, a little bit down. Mm. But of course, no one would think or need to share something like that in a cookery book. But it is possibly the most important, you know, those first tastes. Mm. Uh, tastes are the most important thing you... Yes, they, exactly. They, they sort of form your culinary character for life. You exactly. know, They are formative. Um,
0: and, I mean, that's something that you talk about in a very kind of specific context in the book and is really a part of what the book's about, an important part of what the book's about. It's about tracing your childhood and your family life because now you spend a lot of time caring for your mother yeah. and also cooking for her, don't yes. you? Yeah. Um,
1: which... Um, to a Greek person are one and the same, <laughs> caring for and cooking <laughs> mm. for. Um, uh, yes, m- uh, mum has uh, Alzheimer's. She was diagnosed six years ago. Um, I have two sisters with whom we share her care in the sense that because we're all scattered around the globe, um, so we all take time off and do shifts. Mm. and so I care for mum full time but some of the time if yes, that makes sense yes. um, and so I'm in the middle of my shift now as it, uh, as it happens I had to leave there for a couple of days to come come back here for the for the podcast and uh, other commitments um, and uh, my first reaction as the sort of family cook, I guess, because every family has someone that has an aptitude for it, I think, and they assume the mantle at quite (laughs) a young age that I'm the one who cooks. Um, And so my first thought when mum was diagnosed was to save the recipes um, because that seemed to me the most important part of the family heritage. Um, You know, all these things that... uh, one thinks'll we'll always be on tap because you know that's my favorite thing, and Mum can make it whenever I go there um, and suddenly that wasn't available. Mm. Uh, she was losing that skill and losing that knowledge and actually, the cooking side is one of the very first things that went because she would, for instance, salt things twice or um and so because it requires a a A solid short term memory, um, cooking was one of the first things that went. Yes, of
0: course, even if you do it as it were out of habit or instinctively, you actually need to be focused for that. Yes, you need to remember what you've
1: done already to Mm. a dish and what's to come. Mm. And also because, you know, uh, a kitchen is a, a partly dangerous place with hot things and sharp things. And so, you know the the people that care for Mum around her, the first instinct is to to sort of try and take that away or at yes. least supervise it in some way. um and so uh, the my instinct was to try and save the recipes um not because they were the best recipes or because they were the ultimate recipes or authentic recipes. Um, they were all those things, but the most important thing was that they were our recipes, mm. you know, they were the recipes that I grew up eating. Um, and so, never mind making the best Briam in the world, what you're eating is my mum's and which was her father's probably before her, since he was the cook of that family. Um, mm. And so there is there is comfort in that continuity at a time when you begin to doubt memory, and you begin to doubt the intellectual capacity. You know, mum was a very smart, educated woman that, to a certain extent, lived from the neck up, you know, like we all do to a certain extent, you know, we sit at a computer, we exist in a virtual environment. We have friends on social media that we've never actually met in real life. Um, and mum was very much like that. And what Alzheimer's has done is it has forced her to live in her body as well. Um, it has forced us all to face the, the reality that we don't just exist in our head. Um, the body is a big part of it. It's actually the brain that is in the body, not the other way around and that taking physical pleasure in making things, in offering things, in eating things, is something that um, is the one thing that, in a sense, the disease can't take away from mum. Lunchtime Mm. is still golden time. If you didn't know that she had a health issue, you wouldn't know from watching us eat lunch, Mm. because it's, it's something that you can do with no former knowledge without needing a particular skill and it's something that we all do instinctively. It's about enjoying that moment.
0: So her sensory pleasure in that is undimmed.
1: It's only that moment that exists and when I feed her back the precise taste that she's used to and she grew up with, the reaction is extraordinary. Um, you know, she lights up, she she actually applauds when I walk into the, the room with that day's lunch. Um, and when there was a short period when her health deteriorated um, and I had to feed her actually food that was cut in very small uh, sort of pieces. Um, if I did that before I took the food to her, she wouldn't touch it. I had to walk in with a dish properly constructed and well presented and then take some portion of that out and cut it into small bits and give it to mum so that she knew what she was eating. She wouldn't just accept any old sort of mush. (laughs) (laughs) She had to know what it was and that it was something that was made with care and attention and love. Um, And that to me is instinctive and not coincidental um you know there's a virtuous cycle there where she did this for me uh, when i was little and i'm now doing this for her now that she's little again Mm -hmm. because that's effectively what she is um and uh and to me that is a huge gift huge gift i i you know, I can't wait every time that it's my turn to look after her. Um, <laughs> yeah. We have such a good time.
0: <laughs> you um, mentioned social media a little while ago, and you have shared many of these experiences on social media. It's how I first came across you, and, and you know, sometimes you're also sort of linked to a longer piece of writing. Yeah. And I mean, it is so moving to see that life as it were, sort of close up, um, to hear about the Minute details. Mm. And also I have to say sometimes also to have your appetite really peaked by some <laughs> extraordinary photographs of your mum's lunch. <laughs> yes. Um, so, oh, because just, that's it's, it's what wonderful. it is. Yeah. You
1: know, this is not something that's sort of set up. I, I literally take a photograph of mum's lunch every day um <laughs> and say a little bit about it. Um, but, Sharing
0: but, that with other people, I mean, that's and of course now in a book and wanting to to make those connections between memory and love, and tradition, but not tradition in a kind of hidebound sense, yes. but a, as just part of us. Yes, um, that seems very important to you. There is,
1: um, there seems to me to be strands of uh, identity of DNA in a country's food. Um, Someone someone call, calls this uh, "de profundis" good eating, um, and I think the countries where cooking has developed in kitchens of poverty um, have a depth to their cooking that simply isn't present in countries where cuisine developed in the the palaces of kings. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of different kind of, uh, a different level of trying to impress with style. Um, But the countries where there's been, you know, proper hardship, where people had to learn to extract taste from few simple ingredients, they have a depth of cooking that I I don't think you see elsewhere. And that is effectively the reason why you eat well in some countries and not in others. I mean, generally speaking, you go to holiday in some countries and you eat well. Generally speaking, wherever you go, whatever level or price range the restaurant is, you tend to eat well. You go to other countries and unless you go to a very good restaurant, you don't eat well.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that, to me, is the difference. Um, And Greece uh, has in its DNA that difficulty, that hardship. I mean, we lurch from crisis to crisis. Um, the current crisis is is nothing new. Um, and while this is happening, there is an influx of, you know, a million refugees came through Greece last year. One million refugees through a country with a population of just over 10 million. That is a 10% of the population. Mm. And yet people's first reaction was, Make food. <laughs> you know, what is it we can make lots of? Feed these people. Yes, yes. You know, you. I, I was seeing sort of people being interviewed that were in the courtyard of the sort of police station waiting to be processed. And they were saying that not a single person had walked by that hadn't given them through the railings something, a little bit of a pie or some chocolate or some bread or a bottle of uh, water. Um, and that is really in our, you know, national identity. That is really in our national makeup. The concept of hospitality. Yes. Hospitality is all about making someone comfortable and feeding them. You know, it, it, simple things.
0: I but re- I remember. Um you know in the earlier days of the of, of this current financial crisis seeing a report from greece i have no idea how widespread this is but one of the things it noted was that people on the greek mainland lost them were leaving and going back to island homes yes because all villages, or villages yes. because you knew that you could basically have a shot at having a sort of self-sufficient life yeah you would be able actually to farm a little bit of land yes. or to grow or to cultivate and to, to create food for yourself. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, we may be very keen on allotments in this country, <laughs> but I wonder if the same thing would happen here. I Maybe it would. I sort of doubt it. You know? And it's
1: always people in the cities that starve. That's just how it has always been. So at times of hardship, it's only people in the city that suffer the brunt of a famine. Um, and so... In one sense, it's a natural reaction to say, I'm going to go back to the village. In another sense, it's it's a reaction to a state that had developed in such a top-heavy way that of the 10 million population, almost half of it lived in the capital um, that had become this administrative center for uh, the rest of the country that was half-empty. Mm. You know, And so that was, I think, a healthy thing that needed to happen, Um, but what has been more interesting is that a lot of people have gone back home, um, have gone to live back with their parents or their grandparents, and yes, that has been enforced, and yes, that can have really terrible repercussions, but it is also, and that has to be said, it is also a more efficient way of existing. And so we are, uh, I think, imbued with this sense that everything about growing up is working towards complete independence, you know, towards being a self-sufficient unit, having your own little flat, and you know, all of that. Terribly new idea, really. No, but it's a very new idea, Mm. and it's actually a really consumer-heavy and expensive way of existing. you know, there is only one class in Greece, really. Everyone is petit bourgeois. And what I mean by that is that everyone has the income of a poor person but is trying to appear to be a rich person. Um, and so the natural result of that is, of course, for everyone to be in debt and for the country to be in debt. But that is because we were sold an idea of a westernized life. Too soon, really, before we had a chance to develop towards that. And so it, it's a difficult place in which to be anyway. We straddle North Africa, Asia, and Europe. You know, we're both Balkan and Western European. We're the oldest sort of civilization and democracy in that in that context, but also were under Ottoman occupation for five hundred years until relatively recently. And so it's a it's a difficult mix. And what it seems to me is that Greece decided, made an active decision that they were going to be Western European. And lacking the substance to make that happen, by say uh, developing, you know, a feminist critique, mm. equality those aspects they went for the easy uh, fix that the majority of nouveau-ish people go for which was let's buy the trappings of being Western European yes. because if we wear Ray-Ban san- sunglasses and Versace flip-flops that makes us somehow um, you know, well to do and so there is a brittleness to that and I think one of the positive aspects of the crisis along the many horrific aspects of the crisis. But one of the positive aspects has been to step back from that and actually say who are we? Are we these designer sunglass and flip-flop people? Or are we something that's actually a little bit more substantial than that that we should be proud of instead of trying to somehow wear a costume for something else. That was deep, wasn't it? It was
0: fantastic. <laughs> We're going to end on a sweet note. Actually, I'm going to share a childhood memory of my own oh, now. Oh, very good. Uh, which sort of plays into a little bit of ideas of, you know, migration, food migration. My father worked uh, all his life in restaurants in the hospitality yeah. industry as a way to wine, way to head, way to that sort of thing. And of course very very mobile and multinational workforces you know yes. all meeting people of all nationalities all the time and he was also a very keen cook he was sort of our family is our family cook uh and one of the dishes that he cooked came from meeting greek waiters and them teaching him how to make a chicken now you will correct my pronunciation Avgulemoni. Avgulemoni. of course and I remember having it so frequently throughout childhood. I mean, I make it now, probably quite wrongly. But <laughs> there is no
1: wrongly, that's the point. It is so delicious. You make it how you remember it and okay. special to you. Okay. But, I, I, you know, Avgolemona is probably one of the, the, the most basic things in the book. Because I think it's a taste that deserves to be known internationally, yes, and yet it is isn't. wonderful. Will do you it know what is? it is? No. It is. It is basically an egg a and way lemon. I suppose. Mm. Either a soup or a sauce using egg and lemon that you beat ah, into it. Ah, okay. Um, and it goes with so many things, and it it's sort of rich and velvety without being sickly because it contains no cream. So mm. the sharpness. It's really through. healthy, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's it, really you know, healthy. All of it is. It's delicious. So yes, there will be a chicken soup over lemon. Oh, the most you know. delicious thing. I it remember is, it really is delicious. I
0: remember my dad used to say to me, you know, obviously he'd picked this up from the people who taught him the recipe. Of course people made this because these were things that they had. Yes. They would have some rice, onions, a chicken running around and Absolutely. lemons and that's it. If you're Absolutely. If that's the thing you're making, that's and, all you need.
1: And it's also about, you know, eating chickens when they're towards the end of their life. So yes. you have to boil them for a very long time. You know, the, there's practical know-how in in all of this. It's not a, It's not about, like I said, this is not a cuisine that has developed to impress a, a, a king or a prince regent. This is a cuisine that has developed in order to find a way to use everything, mm. every uh, shell uh, from a seafood, uh, every stalk, every peel. Everything is used. Um, my grandmother used to keep the pips from the lemon because they actually contain pectin. And you can use them to thicken jams. Yeah. Instead of buying pectin, she used to always have a little white net hanging on the handle of the, the little window that was above the sink. And whenever she squeezed the lemon, she would take the pips and put them in there. And whenever she was making something that she needed to thicken, she would tie the little net up, put it in the pot, Bring it out and hang it up again to dry again, mm. and keep adding pips. It's so a great it, tip. She <laughs> had this perpetual stock of pectin yeah. um, from something that you would ordinarily throw away, um, and that is, I think, I think it's it's that aspect of Greek cooking that I feel I need to share with the world mm. um, because there's something rather efficient and beautiful. About that, uh, and something that actually taps into very modern notions of uh, avoiding waste and healthy eating um, that have been around for millennia, um, you know, on the little rock I was born, but are considered sort of revolutionary now. Mm. Um, and that's not to um, that's not to snub the their the reintroduction but it is to say there is uh, actually a library of skill and tip and know-how at your disposal you don't have to reinvent everything there are actually people who have been very poor before and know how to use things efficiently with very little waste and this is um, this is what we can offer
0: right pudding yes halva <laughs> we're going in very very pretty a little kind of a little mold yes with beautiful nuts and what looked like petals Those rose petals rose yes petals? So that's yeah, rose yeah. petals and yeah. pistachios
1: yes
2: pistachios now this is this is halva yes so this now, is to me halva when i was a kid i see we go my, my food lead. memory yeah, yeah. <laughs> i see, i remember my mum giving me some halva that she had bought from a health food store yes. that I won't name, uh, but which is on every high street, <laughs> and it was sort of a dry brick of sort of uh, I don't know. It just sort of I put it in my mouth paste. and it just kind of felt like somebody was trying to desiccate me then and there <laughs> and remove all that water from my body. This. Whereas this looks yes, it's sort very of moist. moist and, syrupy and, it is. It's moist and, and syrupy
1: and very easy. Okay, um, which which I think is a, a another feather in its cap. You it's mean really I could make easy. this? Anyone could make this. Um, there is one dangerous moment where you're pouring hot syrup into the, um, into the base and you have to be careful because it is like lava. I know, it's very, very, <laughs> you know, very it hot is could, It is the thing that, mm. w- if it sticks to you, um, you it hurts. Um, but this is very easy. Basically, halva means sweet in Arabic. And it is the mixture of any sort of starchy thing with a syrup and a fat so you you have uh, versions in India that are made with corn flour and uh, uh, honey and uh, ghee as their fat Mm -hmm. you have versions in um, Libya that are made with potato um, starch corn oil and uh, uh, chopped dates as the sweetener. You know, you, you can have literally any number of versions. The Greek version, the very Greek version, is this thing, which is made of semolina, that is mixed with nuts. Occasionally you can put raisins in it, um, and a, a, a light oil, um, because you don't want something that has an overwhelming taste, and a, a syrup that you can perfume with all sorts of things. In this case, it's perfumed with uh, cinnamon and orange. Mm-hmm. but there is literally nothing wrong you could put in that. You could put star anise and fennel seeds. That would be a delicious you know twist um, to it.
0: It's also sweet but not very sweet.' it's not, it's very not, sweet. not yeah. sickly yes. sweet at all, which yes. is, is is I
1: stenchous. have to say this, the, the the properly traditional version is a little bit sweeter mm. than that. And that's purely because before the days when people had kitchen scales and things like that, um, recipes tended to be simplified to ratios. And the ratio for this was one, two, three, four, which means one cup oil, two cups semolina, three cups sugar, four cups water. It's a really easy thing to remember. Mm. But actually, as you know, culinary skill develops and people can measure things more precisely, you find that I don't need three cups sugar, actually, two and a half are fine. And I don't need that much oil. You know, maybe instead of 250 ml, 180 will do the job just fine. And so that's how it evolves. You make it a little bit lighter, you make it a little bit less sweet, a little bit more suited for a a, a modern palate. Um, But it's still... It's still the family recipe. You've just sort of taken it by the hand and gently (laughs) led it towards a slightly more health-conscious today, you know.
0: Thank you so much for leading us by the hand through these four amazing plates of food. Um, They just were amazing. They were amazing
2: and so different. And so different. And and, and that you've been able to tell us so much about your family history, but also, of course, the history of of Greece as a country uh, through those plates of food is just fantastic we will have to wait of course for your book although it's worth saying now uh, congratulations because your book without even being published has already won an award yes that's true the Jane Grigson Um, Trust Award that's right isn't
1: it the very first Jane Grigson Trust Award that uh, is aimed at books that are in the process of uh, being written which strikes me as a really useful sort of thing Mm. to do Mm. um someone actually uh, said to me um I didn't think your book was out. How can it win an award? And I replied, it's that good. (laughs) Well, on the basis of what what we've eaten,
0: I think you're probably right. Um, We very much look forward to it. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us And feeding us.
2: Thank you.